0: One of the worst things in the world, other than like when a cat rubs up against you when you get out of the shower or when you can't find your car keys, one of the worst feelings in the world is when you're trying to get everything sorted out. You're trying to move everything around and clear some desk space or just make sure things are plugged together correctly. And you look down and you find a loose cord for something and you can't quite figure out what it's plugged into. And there's that moment of panic of, oh God, did I unplug something when I was moving that all of a sudden everything is just wrecked. And then you, you play with it a little bit and you untangle it and you realize it's just a plug that was caught up in other plugs. And then you feel a little silly. But that's that's where I'm at today. Delightful, happy to be here uh, with a clearer workspace and um, way fewer chords. I hope you've been well. I hope this is good. There are some genuinely good, deep, thoughtful questions here. Uh, and I, I really, I really hope you enjoy this. I'm a little early. I don't have any plugs. No, that's not true. I do have a plug. Uh, I would like to plug my own stuff for a minute. If you head over to patreon.com forward slash John helps you write better. Um, Especially if you're at one of the upper tiers, oh man, there's going to be a ton of stuff coming, and I'm not just talking about how we're going to move through more of the expanded Marvel television series. There's a ton more behind-the-scenes stuff coming, and and other prep stuff, and loads of things that you're going to get an exclusive look at before I'm even done making them. That'll be fun. I think it'll be nice. So um, Patreon.com forward slash John helps you write better. And now, we're going to go do some things. Let's go to work. Here we go. All right. Just remember what I've taught you. And and here we are. It's so nice to have you here. It's so nice to be here. I have looked forward to this for a few days. This has been this has been great. If you have no idea what this is, if this is the first time you're checking it out, hi, I'm John. I, I hope you're doing okay. I hope you're I hope you're having a a really nice day. I hope you're doing good things. This is the writer's chat. This is the writer's chat for October the 10th. And uh, if you don't know what the writer's chat is, well, I've collected questions from all corners and comers from social media, and I'm going to give you a couple answers, hopefully, hopefully good answers, hopefully you like them, who knows, but let's do an opening and then we'll get started. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, smokers, barbecue enthusiasts, roofers, anybody who's ever nailed a deck or been on a deck and gotten nailed, anybody who's maybe a little leery of cruise ships, nacho cheese enthusiasts, chip lovers jugglers, snack eaters, people who bring their own snacks into movie theaters because the price of snacks is ridiculous, sandwich enthusiasts, sandwich artists, anybody who's ever been surprised about the amount of gunk they clean out of a thing when they really do a nice deep cleaning, people who cleaned their fridge in the last three days, anybody who's taken their meds uh, properly today, hydrated folks, and most importantly, the comrades. I've got some good questions today. I think you're really going to like this. I think you're really really going to like this. Let's get started. Question number 1. What is a writer's spiral? This is pretty straightforward. You've probably done this. I know I've done this. This is pretty this is a a really common thing. A writer's spiral is where some thought or some fear or some expectation becomes the center point or the first domino that um, gets built around or sets off a cascade of other thoughts like this. Let's see. Um, I haven't sold any books today. I haven't really written today. Uh, I'm a failure as a writer because I didn't write today. And oh God, I don't know if I can write tomorrow because I have my I got that thing at work. And oh, what if I what if I I could write this weekend? No, I, I can't write this weekend. I promised I would show up for that event. I don't really want to do that event. I'm such a bad person. Oh God, I'm terrible. See how we we just kind of fell apart there. Likewise, you can do this for anything. A writer's spiral is the idea that because of one thing, 95 other things are true. And most of the time, they're negative. It's really possible. It is possible, I should say, to have a positive writer's spiral. Oh man, I did one thing. I'm going to be able to knock out all four today. It's very possible. It requires a little bit of effort, a little bit of motivation, a little bit of focus. But overall, yeah, a writer's spiral is an unnecessary an often overdone thing where everybody just gets a little bit caught up in how one, there's one problem, but somehow because there's one problem, there's like 15 or 20 other associated problems that must therefore also be true. However, there's no evidence for that. It's just an assumption. And when we act on our assumptions and take them as true, we end up and put ourselves in positions where we end up doing more harm than good. Writer spirals. They suck. On we go. Question number two. Is it a bad idea to bring back a villain in a story? The question I should have asked when somebody emailed me this question was, what do you mean by bring back in a story? If we're talking about how in the middle of one book, you've taken care of your villain, and then they come back at the end for a climax... It's very contextual. It's very situational. If we really, really like blew them up, had them disintegrated with a laser cannon, they were eaten by a dragon or swallowed by like a butthole in the desert or something, it seems very unlikely that we are going to be able to bring them back. Bringing them back, really at any time, undercuts and weakens the emotional relief of, of them being taken care of in the first place. If your super cool bounty hunter gets eaten by a desert space monster and they're written off, that helps make the space monster look cool and kind of make our super cool bounty hunter look like a wuss, but it's at least a cool way to go out. Wow, that's so awesome. If we decide we want to, I don't know, have a cash grab and fill some time on our streaming service. So we decide to take this fan-favorite character and for whatever reason make a mediocre-at-best show all about him because he didn't die. Um, You weaken everything about the character. It's not automatically a bad idea to bring them back. It's just very, very, very situational. We want to bring them back if bringing them back raises the stakes and does not necessarily suffer too much from being weakened by them leaving in the first place. Like if we just, I don't know, push our guy off the, off the train, he's hanging on and we, we knock him off. Yes. We've, we've taken him, we've taken care of him for the moment, but he'll be back later. We know he'll be back later. Then that is a good time, a good case of bringing him back later in a story. However, if you excessively take care of him and we are ge- the reader is given a sense of satisfaction about it you're going to weaken it the minute you bring them back even though it sounds on some level like a great idea i know this villain worked once they'll work again it's a tricky thing to navigate it's also way too situational like way way too situational but by and large yeah Um, it's not automatically a bad idea. I would just say, use it sparingly. Really, 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 really sparingly. Because otherwise, all you're going to end up doing is having a villain that doesn't necessarily seem unstoppable, just kind of narratively lazy. Oh, we know they'll be back. Think about like all those slasher movie villains like Michael Myers, like Jason, something like that where we, we just the during the course of the movie, the fact that they're unstoppable creates tension and it's what helps move us along. But when, you know, there's like 20 something movies in a series or whatever and, Oh, this is, you know, now they're back. Now they're in New York city. Now they're in space. It, it gets kind of absurd because at the end of the day, this was really just a guy who was hunting down camp kids who tortured him as a boy. And now all of a sudden we're in space because you keep bringing the villain back because why exactly? Something to think about. On we go to question three. Question number three. How do I deal with the fact that I can think of a ton of possible ideas, but I struggle to choose one? Okay, I don't like the way this question is worded. I didn't like it when I first saw it. I don't like it now. Because deal with the fact makes it sound like you just have to accept how this is. And yeah, we can accept the first half that you can think of a ton of possible ideas. That's great. But I'm not happy with accepting struggling to choose one as a given fact of equal weight. Yeah, you can think of a ton of things, but you do not have to struggle to pick one. A lot of times where a writer is indecisive or when a writer is indecisive, they're indecisive not because of the idea, but they're trying to think ahead. If I take this idea, what could the response be? If I take this idea, what could I do with it? If I take this idea, dot, dot, dot. And that is makes sense in the context of, well, look at the, look at the bigger picture. Look, look what's going to happen down the road. If I start writing or I publish or I start developing this. And then all of a sudden we're talking about, well, if I develop this, I got to make an outline and I got to have this and how do I market it? And we're, we're like way down the road already. We're on step one. What's your idea? Having your idea. Does it excite you? Do you like the sound of this idea? Forget for a minute the marketing strategy 45 steps from now or forget how you're going to query it or forget the title or whatever other sort of little detour you've taken on this narrative train ride. You choose an idea based on if you like the sound of it. Do I want to tell a story where uh, a woman is haunted by the things her husband dreams up in his nightmares, they come to life and attack her during the day And she doesn't know her husband's dreams are the the source of it. Do I want to tell a story of a young up and coming lawyer who discovers incredible corruption at his corporation? Do I like this idea? Does this excite me? It doesn't matter if I don't know if I can make a hundred thousand words out of it. It doesn't matter if I can think about this in terms of it being the next new hot new adult, you know, thriller. It just matters if I like this idea. And making that decision, because writing is the act of making decisions, making that decision is the only thing that matters. If you are struggling to make a decision because, oh my God, I have 15 really, really good ideas, write them down. Write them all down. And then if they're all good, just pick one. But pick them because you like the idea. Do not pick it because you're thinking about, oh, well, I got to market it. And I got to outline it. And what about this? And I got to have a character and I got to have a theme. All of those things might be true, but you don't have to think that far ahead. This isn't like chess where we are trying to figure out, like, if I move this pawn 17 moves later, I can move the queen. I'm not, we're not, we're not this isn't, it doesn't work like that. Writing is far more dynamic, far more fluid. Art is way more fluid than that. So when we're choosing an idea, just choose the idea on whether or not you like it. And if it turns out you can get a whole book out of it, as is, great. And if it turns out that we have to add a little bit to it or twist it around or do something to it to get a whole book out of it, fine. And if it turns out that even after all that stuff, we can't really get a whole book out of it, that's fine too. Not all your ideas need to be full novels, or need to be bestsellers in training, that idea, that thinking, that philosophy is just going to lead you to burnout. And it's going to lead you to burnout really, really quickly. Because you will push yourself over things that don't need pushing. And you will try and and drag ass and claw and feel way more frustrated when it doesn't need to be such a a burden. It's not that hard, or at least you're making it harder than it needs to be, though it can be at times difficult. There's nothing wrong with thinking of a ton of ideas and being a little idea engine that could. The problem is if you can't pick one, if you're just paralyzed by it, the two questions I'm going to ask are, one, do you really want to just do it in the first place. Are you really wanting to be a writer if you can't settle on an idea and you just like being imaginative? Because there's nothing wrong with being imaginative. It's a daydream. It's escapist. It's good for you. It's nice. But in order to make that transition from I daydream a lot to I want to be a writer, whether that's a hobby or whether that's my job is, is at this point immaterial, but you got to pick one. And we're going to pick one based on whether or not you like it. And not on anything else. What a really nice question. Okay. On we go. I don't know who's here because yet again, the little icon that tells me there's uh, anybody in chat just says that I'm here, which is super not helpful because I know I'm here. So if you're in chat and I can't see you, hello. And if you're watching this on YouTube later, hi from the past, uh, or hello, YouTube in the future. It's good to see you too. Uh, YouTube people, by the way, if you have, um, if you have any comments or questions, leave them down below and I will, I swear to you, reply to them. Hi chat. It's good to see you guys. I hope you're doing okay. Um, I really did like that last question. It was really, really good. Now, let me just do one little piece of housekeeping. Let's do today's tea cup date. Uh, cause there is tea again. Hooray. Uh, today we are rocking Irish breakfast tea. It's super hella caffeinated because um, I, was, I made the mistake about three hours ago of thinking to myself, gosh, right before lunch, man, I'm really dragging ass today. It's because I had been talking all morning recording stuff. So what I need is just a little bit of a pick-me-up. So, of course, I've made a pint glass worth of hyper-caffeinated tea that I'm in the middle of enjoying. talking to you and answering your questions. So I am fully ready to vibrate like into another dimension. Hooray and answer some more questions. So do you people in chat have any questions about anything? Otherwise we're just going to, you know, march right along. Could I explain how to get out of a spiral? I didn't really cover that in the first question, so let me cover that right now. Here's your way out of a spiral. Focus on, I'll give you a couple options, how's that? Focus on, focus on two things. Focus on where you're at immediately. Like, where you, are you sitting? Are you standing? Are you laying down? Are you wherever? And in that immediacy, in that moment, is there anything in that moment that really, really, really needs your attention? Like, okay, you're sitting down. You're freaking out. Right now, it is uh, 16, minutes at the, uh, 16 minutes after 1 on the East Coast right now. If I'm freaking out and in the middle of a spiral, is there anything at 1.16 that I need to stop and do related to any of the things I'm worrying about? would it really make sense for me to sit down and do the marketing on this idea that i haven't even started yet would it make sense to have me um oh my god i better i better tweet a thousand things cuz i haven't tweeted in a month or whatever your your panic might be in that moment does it really matter probably not In that moment, is there anything I can do to bring myself some more comfort than I am currently feeling? What would I need to be more comfortable, to be less tense? Chances are the answer is going to be I need to keep breathing. I need to put some water in my body. I need to take a deep breath. I need to not focus on steps way down the road, and I need to just look at where I'm at. The other thing you can do, if all of that sounds very therapeutic and not terribly creative. The other thing you can do is get up and move your body and do something else for a set amount of time. I tend to do 20 minutes. Why? Because it's an easy thing I can set a timer on my phone for. 20 minutes, I'm going to go do something that is radically different than the thing I'm currently worrying about. Oh, my God, i got to figure out how to outline this book. Oh, my God, I need an idea. I haven't written in four days and I feel like shit. I I could totally sit here and and obsess over that. Absolutely, I could. Or I could get up and in 20 minutes I could take all the trash out. I could change the cat litter. I could put a load of laundry in. I could uh, vacuum something. I could play with the cat. You know, I could do literally anything different physically with my body, not just sit there and watch something else on a different monitor, but physically do something. And through the magic of, oh my God, I'm a human with a body that generally tends to lift enough out of a spiral that I feel a little bit more comfortable. If that doesn't work, you need to talk out loud to yourself and reassure yourself that even though there's a million things and, Oh man, there's so many problems and you got to do all this stuff. If you just keep telling yourself to do one step at a time and that you're all right and that you can always ask for help if you're not sure what the next step is or how to do it and that you only need to do one step at a time and you keep telling yourself you're all right, you're safe, you're good, you're capable while you're doing it, the spiral will naturally dissipate. I have had all, I've had success with all those methods. Some more than others. Sometimes I have to try two before it works. But eventually, through one way or the other, it just works. That's how you do that. I'm sorry you go through those. They're really common, but they're also fixable. You just got to be patient with yourself. Other questions? Otherwise, we we will march on to the next thing. There are some really genuinely deep questions coming. I know that. I just don't remember where they are in the order. Oh, look, it's one of those deep questions right now. Question number four, how can I get better at following through? A lot of writers struggle because they, they're great in the early. They're great in the early parts. Oh, I started writing again and everybody celebrates. I wrote 5,000 words, 2,000 words. I've started a new book. Yay. And, and they just keep talking about the next new thing they're doing and you know it it's great it's lovely everybody's really happy with it it's all you know 5 million times starting new things but at the end of the day they never seem to go forward they always seem to work up to a point why is that well it's cuz it gets hard it's because whatever that point they stop at that's usually where they need to make a decision or they need to challenge themselves or they need to push themselves out of a comfort zone or they need to do a thing that they're averse to doing. Like, do you understand the number of people who tell me on any given day that they're just bad at outlining? But when when you sit with them and help make them an outline, they get past the thing they're stuck at because they've only been writing sort of loose and carefree, and then all of a sudden we have to write more disciplined because they're trying to do a thing that's supposed to be more disciplined. You get better at following through by making a choice by organizing the steps of that choice into small enough pieces. And rather than punish yourself for failing, there's too many writers out there who sit down and say things like, I didn't write yesterday, so I I owe the words. If you do, let's say, 500 words a day or something, and I didn't write yesterday, now all of a sudden I owe 1,000 words. That's that's stupid. I, I don't know how else to tell you that that is a huge mistake. And you're turning a thing you're supposed to like doing and turning a thing that you say is important to you into yet another debt you owe. And you're doing this on purpose to yourself. I don't get it. I don't understand. So instead of, not, instead of doing that, could we not? Could we do something different? Could we just turn following through into a very simple progression of breadcrumbs? You know, you have, let's say, five things to do today. What are the smallest steps you can break each of those things into? Sure, it might take up more paper, more lines on the on the to-do list piece of paper or whatever. But if you turn them into small steps, then you have even more things to cross off. And every step becomes more manageable. And while it doesn't necessarily immediately turn into, oh my God, someone praised me because I've done 5,000 words, hooray, You have to learn to reward yourself for doing five words or 10 words or 100 words. Yeah, you're capable of more, but if it's been a struggle to get one foot forward, celebrate it. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make you bad or wrong. We don't only have to celebrate the big, giant accomplishments. Anything can be a big, giant accomplishment. That's how life works. You can follow through by making what you're trying to do more manageable, not less complicated, not, you know, overall fewer in quantity, just make it easier to do rather than say, I have to write this book, which is ridiculous. What if we just broken into, okay, I have to figure out what the story is. Okay. That's even, that's more vague. I have to sort out who the main character is. I have to figure out a plot. I have to figure out how to uh, give the plot some conflict. Break it into smaller and smaller pieces until the decisions are so straightforward that there's no real room to not want to do it. Because you said the thing's important to you. You said it mattered. So if we just keep boiling this thing down, even though it turns it, you know, one thing into two things, into ten things, into a hundred things or whatever. But if it's a hundred simple decisions and we can just snap, 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 fire them off, look at all the progress you'll make. You follow through by making it easier, not harder. You don't get bonus points for, you know, climbing mountains in two steps. You get accomplished. You you get praise and validated first that should come from yourself, but you get that by accomplishing it at all. Nobody gives a shit about the number of steps. It's not a competition. Stop seeing it like that. Just make it easier for yourself. This is already plenty difficult. With all the jobs and bills and families and spouses and partners and kids and this, that, and the other, there's plenty of hard things in the world. Why don't we have our art be something that's simpler for us? It doesn't make it bad, but we follow through by making it easier, not harder. On we go. Question number five. How much of, there's a typo in my question, how much of building a reader community is mythology building. Uh, this, one, this one's tough to answer because um, it makes me think about all the times I built ineffective or ineffectual communities that were too busy satisfying egos, whether it was my ego or somebody else's or a combination thereof. One of the things that can really destroy the foundation of a community, especially whether it's a community of readers or writers or whoever, is that the reading or the writing, the the, the common reason, the, the common support thing that holds everybody together, when that becomes secondary to anything else, whether that's other activities or personalities or time or space, and it, it just sort of loses that, that compass. It loses that orientation. You start seeing cracks, and you start seeing the system get tested and the system fail. Mythology building is the duct tape that can hold a community together until you can shore it up with better material. However, mythology building is an awful lot of insulating and ego. Mythology building is the, if you don't know what I'm talking about, mythology building is the idea that there are people within a group who are who they are because of what they've done and those exploits, those ideas, that language, those concepts, the the whateverness of them gets hyped up making that person and those events sort of a big deal in the group. And then depending on who that person is and what those activities are, the other people venerate them to some degree. It's sort of like when you... Um, let's use a YouTube example, cause this will be on YouTube. If you watch a YouTuber and they say something like, Oh, I have a discord, go, go check out the discord or whatever. Um, you can join that discord and that person, that YouTuber might be there maybe infrequently, maybe rarely, maybe they just have mods. And there seems to be this level of, uh, separation between the YouTuber and the fan base And the the space of that community seems dedicated to extolling the many virtues or failings or both of that YouTuber. And it becomes less about a community of people who enjoy what the YouTuber is producing and more more and more with more and more people coming in and less control and restriction about people developing a strange parasocial relationship with things. When a writing community falls apart like that, or, or gets invaded by that kind of thinking, you end up building a lot of mythology. Hey, remember that time when dot, dot, dot. Oh, what about this dot, dot, dot. Not all communities are built on those things. Not all communities survive being built on those things. Mythology building is important, but it, instead of mythologizing a single person and their exploits or the past, what should be mythologized is the common effort that holds everything together. So if we're trying to get a group of your readers together to buy your book and talk about the world you're creating and talk about your sales and talk about what you're doing, keep it focused there rather than, oh, my God, look, they posted a picture of their puppy on Instagram. Oh, wow, they're talking about, you know, affiliate links for Amazon, whatever fuck day it is. Let's, you know, make sure we do that, too. Don't make it about yourself when you're trying to build your community. Make it about the community and what you want them to do. You are a part of that rather than the head of that community. That's probably an answer that's going to go over a lot of people's heads because it seems like most people aren't at that stage yet. But there are a few people out there, especially the people who I know ask this question, who will care about that. Make it about what you do and what you love and what you're trying to put out in the world more than any single person and the community will be better for it and you'll get the better results you're looking for really honestly and truly on we go question hang on I need a mouthful of tea question number six I took a 10 month break from querying okay do I need to mention that in my current query why? Why 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 like hang on. Why would you mention that in your like why? Are you suggesting that, well, I queried this place ten months ago? Should I mention that? No. Cause if you got rejected once, that's not gonna help. Let me give you an example outside writing and maybe we can we can see why I'm wondering why this is a thing. I had a client buy me Wendy's today for lunch and it had been a long time since I had been to a Wendy's. When I went up to the when I went up to the person to buy my burger and fries, um I didn't mention to them that gosh, it had been a long time since I was at Wendy's because A, it's none of their business. B, What are they supposed to do with that information and see, so what? When you take a break, for whatever reason, marriage, kids, pandemic, job, just plain old time off, you don't need to tell everybody that you took a break when you come back. This isn't like, you know, asking to use the bathroom and and leaving class and then coming back. It's just you stopped, and then you picked back up. It's totally fine. You don't need to ask their permission or suggest that they need to give you some kind of approval or acceptance. You don't need to mention it at all. Really and truly, you just don't. What an interesting question, though. If you're about to ask me the follow-up, are there any times where you want to mention it at all? I can't think of any. I don't think so. On we go. Are there any more questions from anybody in chat? Otherwise, we will just keep moving. Yeah, let's keep moving then. Question number seven. I think this might be my favorite question of the day. Question number seven. Why does so much of the pre-publishing industry run on toxic positivity? Do we all know what toxic positivity is? The hyper-chipper, hyper-positive, no room for failure, um, always up, always manic kind of vibe? The pre-publishing industry refers to all the people and all the things, all the coaches, all the editors, all the agents, all the community group things or whatever, all that stuff. It runs best on toxic. No, that's not accurate, John. It doesn't run best. It runs, period. It runs on toxic positivity because what you're encountering and who you're encountering are people who are acting primarily out of a strong emotional place. People are really nervous. They're feeling really vulnerable. They're feeling really overwhelmed. They want really badly for this to happen. They have maybe been thinking about this since they were a kid. They, they, they've got a lot of eggs in this basket. It's something very personal to them. They've spent a lot of time and energy and effort in it. So they're feeling real sensitive. And toxic positivity preys on that sensitivity because it suggests an idealized goal. If you just keep doing this, if you follow this 35 simple step, if you just hand over your credit card and pay $7,000, if you just keep going, don't give up. If you just, you know, jump through all the hoops and you happen to guess the one magic password, and if you happen to do this, and if things go the right way, and if you just keep trying, you too can make it. And it's unnecessary, but it's easier to sell because you're leveraging that desperation. You're leveraging the difficulty. You're leveraging the effort. You're leveraging the idea that, gosh, we don't want to be negative, do we? We don't want to be pragmatic, do we? We just want to make sure everybody's excited because, oh, my God, when this happens to you, wow, you'll really do great which is not a thing they could possibly know. I get a newsletter once a week from a from a YouTuber whose videos I have used occasionally as sort of like teaching tools. I've given them to clients. I've said, hey, watch this. This explains something better than I could. Or, hey, this is an example of what to do or what not to do. But I get this newsletter every, I think it's like every Tuesday or it's at least Tuesday when I read it. And it is the most annoying thing in the world. Like I don't know why I don't just mark it as spam, but uh, I am I am driven to click it and read the insipid blend of gifs and emoji and hyper positive cloying saccharin falsehoods hurled to desperate people. Hey, if you want to be a YouTuber just like me, if you want to, you know, do what I do, you got to sign up for this $10,000 thing and oh my god, I was so lucky. I just had this brand opportunity that made me $400,000. That's not everybody's experience. Some of those things aren't going to be available for somebody who's on like day 5. It's nice that you've got those opportunities. It's nice that you are offering this level of experience, but you have to remember that the audience isn't where you're at. And the farther you get away from where your audience is currently, the harder it's going to be to sustain their momentum more than yours. So what's the solution? You get toxically positive. If you ever watch content from people who have long since eclipsed the point they're talking about, like if you ever watch an author talk about writing a first book, but you know, like their promo is for their 10th new book in the series, they're going to struggle to really reconnect to the same feelings they had way back from the first one. They'll shorthand it. They'll hand wave it away. Well, then I got a book deal and then I wrote three books and then, you know, hand wave, hand wave, hand wave. Toxic positivity fills some of those gaps by going back to that emotional button. You're going to do great. Just keep going. And then you too one day will be able to own this expensive second home. And look how magical my life is now. And isn't it great and pretty and curated? Look how successful I am. Completely overlooking the hard part. Completely discounting the tough parts, the failures. We don't want to talk about the failures because that might discourage you as a customer of mine. We don't want to talk about failures because then you're going to think about failure. And then you're going to realize that this is difficult. And then you're probably going to question whether or not the really pat, dumb, pointless, vapid emails you get are really helping you. Toxic positivity plugs a lot of holes. It's also a really effective tool for susceptible people to get suckered in by. And I watch too many people get gold by too many grifters looking to sell a thing based on the flimsiest, vaguest bullshit. And then, gosh, you know, I'll tell you exactly my, my incredible strategy for how to grow your audience, but you know, hand me that credit card first. If if your strategy is so rock solid and anybody can do it, and it really works. Why won't you charge for more individual stuff and give some of your strategy away? It always works, right? It always delivers. So why not get everybody started and then charge when you want to like push and try new things? Could it be perhaps because it doesn't work and you're just looking to divorce a sucker from their money? Who knows? But a lot of the pre-publishing world runs that way because it's less about I want to help somebody and more about I want to help myself through somebody else. That's why that happens. Question eight. How can I diversify my publishing beyond Amazon? The problem with Amazon is that they're the big giant fish in the sea, right? They're the big gorilla in the room that takes up all the oxygen and it makes everything else, even though they are technically doing the same thing, they make everybody else appear weaker by comparison and they make everybody else feel like an also ran. However, when you look at something like Chirp or Libro or Bookshop, Barnes and Noble or Smashwords or just making your own PDF and selling it, those are all viable methods for producing a PDF that you can distribute to digital devices. All of those things. Some of them are audio you know, capable. You can do your own audio book stepping away from Audible. There's nothing. Yes, you're going to pay a bench. You want to make sure you're doing a better quality thing no matter whether you're going on Audible or not. But you have other options. You can do other things. Now, what people are counting on, the customer side is counting on is familiarity. They know what it's like to go to Amazon and buy a book. We've we've been trained. We are good, obedient little mammal drones. We know we go to Amazon, we scroll, we click this thing, we do that thing, we do this, we do that. We get a book. It's the same for other websites, but since we're in the book space to have this discussion, we're always almost always talking about Amazon and Amazon search results and this, that, and the other, as if that is the norm, and it's not. But that's how deeply Amazon has invaded this conversation. You can do loads of different things to you know, increase your publishing beyond Amazon. You don't have to go to Amazon. You can you know go through Chirp and Bookshop and LibroFM. You can go straight to, you know, just digital, simple releases with a creative commons. It takes a little bit more work. It takes a little bit more research. And Amazon is counting on the fact that you're not willing to do that work because you just want it one and done. You want the results and you want it over quickly and you want to be like everybody else and not question the system too much and just keep doing what they want you to do unquestioningly. That's what they're counting on. And they're counting on that because their market share is so large, their reach so vast that everything else looks like a little cardboard lemonade stand on the corner as opposed to a grocery store. It doesn't have to. We don't have to agree to that. All those other methods, straight sales from an author's website, a bookshop account, um, Barnes and Noble, anybody who is an Amazon, they're all valid. They're all legit. Actually, if you go to something like straight to the author, uh, they get the most money. You don't have to worry about royalties or anything. You don't have to worry about them not getting the full amount you're paying for the book. But you have options. You have opportunity. You have to be willing to consider what Amazon is doing. I go to Amazon to, to, to publish this book and sell this book. What things, not so much what Amazon is doing in terms of the Amazon ecosystem, but if Amazon is making my book available to sale and then um, managing how my book is discovered or giving uh, a transaction of some kind, if I can find replacements for any of those steps, I can step, I can get away from Amazon. I just need a place to host my stuff. I I can put it on my website. I just need to sell my book with a transaction. I can use a a WordPress plugin or I can go to a third-party vendor that is isn't Amazon and I can accomplish all the same things that you do on Amazon, but I could do it without Amazon. You just need to be willing to look past that and think past that. And a lot of people won't because some of those steps take a little bit more time or aren't naturally as easy as saying, just go on Amazon. But if we're trying to diversify, we have to be willing to embrace steps and options. And that's why this matters so much. We don't have to keep feeding the big giant corporation. That's what I'm saying. Question nine. Love this question. Does historical fiction have any limits? Would the 1980s or the 1990s be historical? Okay, we're all going to feel really old for a minute. Because the answer is yes. The 1980s or the 90s qualifies as historical fiction. Because it's greater than 30 years from the point at which you're telling the story. I feel really old because the 1980s and 90s were decades within my lifetime. Historical, yeah, I know. I I get it. I know. I'm a kid from the late 70s. I I feel it deeply in my soul. I feel real old right now. Historical fiction's rule is you got to go 30 years backwards, at least, in order to be historical fiction. Just 30 years most of the time though people go farther back they go they go oh i'll go 50 years back well 50 years back is is only the 60s and 70s it's not the 1950s it's not you know the 1920s we we jump far enough back and yeah historical fiction in the regency era or historical fiction in napoleonic times or The Age of Sail or French Monarchy or whatever. Yeah, those are all great things that are very much removed. But it is equally valid to just go, yeah, it's historical fiction. It's set in the 80s. Which is deeply uncomfortable. Believe me. Oh, God. But at the same time, yeah, that matters. Just 30 years back. So if you were to ask me in 10 years the same question, stuff from the year 2000 would be historical fiction. Other than that, you can go as far back as you want. But yes, 80s and 90s, historical fiction, in the same way that you can find like on the classic rock station of any major city, you can find the music I grew up listening to. And the classic rock I listened to on the classic rock station way back is now oldies because time just keeps marching forward, which is why you can hear Nirvana and Guns N' Roses at a grocery store. (sighs) We all feel really old for a second. I think we should all just, I don't know, make sure our backs aren't too sore and, Check our inshore supply and make sure, you know, we've been doing okay because, well, old folks, we got older there for a minute. On we go. Any questions from anybody here? I see more people came in. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming. It's good to see you. Anything? Anyone? Shall we just keep going? Yeah. Let's keep going. At least let's just get past the question that made us all feel old. Question 10. Will traditional publishing ever examine its inherent ableism or any of its biases? No. No, it won't. Uh, Here's why. Because that that whole system, that whole arrangement is built on those things. Traditional publishing is built on a number of ableist principles, including visibility, uh, including uh, neurotypical versus neurodivergence, including, um, at least in a lot of cases, English as a primary communication tool. That's, that's sort of at the heart of things. If you were to poke those things with a stick and make what it sees as concessions more of its you know, necessary parts, like low vision read accessibility, audiobook production, language translation, things like that. If those became more mainstays, those companies would probably have to spend more money They'd probably have to care more. That would probably cut into their profits. That would probably slow down some of their production schedule, even slower than it is right now. So it's not in their interest at all to examine their ableism. Their preference for a certain kind of writer, uh, read that as white and cis. Um, their preference for you know, non-disabled, uh, non-divergent, normalcy, I'm making air quotes, uh, is to their advantage. It's how they can exclude people. It's how they can say, well, this is, you know, this, this, they'll do it on the lens of the work, but often they're looking at the, the author too. You're a tough sell as an author if you fall into a marginalized community. They have to worry about pushback. They have to worry about somebody from the the majority getting real mad that they just published a new trans author, and they don't want that pushback. It could go poorly, so better just to say no and reject them. They have no interest in being less biased. They have no interest in being less ableist. They have no interest in being less typical or less... Uh, majority focused because that's how they stay in charge. That's how they keep being told by other people and then internally by themselves that they're legit and that their form of publishing is still valid and still good and still the preferred way of getting your book anywhere. That's horrible, flat out just bad, but we keep letting it happen. We don't push back. Why don't we push back? Probably because we want the results. I can't turn around and tell this publisher, hey, go suck eggs because I want them to publish my book. I can't turn around and say, I'd like you to give an equal size advance that I'm getting to that author over there. Can't do that because they don't want to spend the money. They're going to stay biased. They're going to stay ist or phobic They will pay lip service to those things, to those communities, to those ideas, and then they'll make a big show about how many concessions they're making. Look at us. We're being inclusive. We've, you know, given people the chance to be rejected by us. Look at us. We're making, you know, we're making sure our readers can access our materials in a variety of ways, assuming they're willing to pay the money rather than just do it for free always looking to turn a profit, always looking to exclude someone, always looking to maintain a str- what they perceive to be a stranglehold in authority. They have no reason to examine their biases. It's a lot easier to look at drama than in the mirror. It's a lot easier to look at the profit line than it is look at themselves. They're not going to change. We have to change. We have to find different ways and modes of publishing. We have to be willing to let go some of these things and let trad pub go extinct. We're going to have an easier time of it soon. Climate change alone will be a huge factor in that. But again, I think a lot of it has to do with consumption, capitalism, whiteness, racism and sexism. And they're not looking at that shit. They, they don't want to because that would mean maybe hopefully one day assuming responsibility for perpetuating it. And they're not interested in doing that at all. Question 11. Oh man, I better get more tea for this. Question 11. What do I do about my overthinking when it comes to figuring out what my story is and or isn't. Okay. Okay. You're an overthinker. Hi. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming. You're overthinking a number of things for any number of reasons. The particular reasons don't concern me right this second. But the counter to overthinking is decision making. We can stop overthinking by just making some choices. Now, I know what you're probably thinking in your overthinking. How do I know I've made the right choice? If I make these choices, what happens if, it, if it's wrong? What happens if it's a mistake? And that's how we get into a writer's spiral. Remember from question one? That we, we, we start overthinking our answers. Because we're trying to get the right one. Whatever the right one is. If there even is a right one. I'm making air quotes. Because there isn't. There's there's just answers. They're not wrong. They're not right. They're just answers. Some answers are easier to work with up to a point or work with in a certain capacity than others. You can think of an idea and it'll be a smoother writing process for the first 10,000 words than others would be, and then other things would be easier 20,000 words in, or some ideas are more fully formed than others, but that doesn't make them better than ideas that are difficult or harder throughout or shorter term or whatever. Your overthinking is defeated by making a decision. And since we're not thinking about things in terms of right and wrong, and we're thinking about it in terms of what can I do with this, and does this idea make me happy and can I do anything with it? There's not a lot to overthink. We are geared for it. We've been trained to do it because we're trained to, like we talked about before, think about 15 steps down the road and pay attention to that rather than just where we're at. But we can work around this. Just make a decision. It's not about right or wrong, but just make a decision. If, If we choose the left path and the fork in the road, what happens? Okay, we can do this, that, or the other thing, and maybe we can write this and write that. Okay, if that doesn't work or we need to change it, then we just change it. That doesn't mean our idea was bad or wrong. It just means we have to change something. Rather than condemn it or condemn ourselves or think that, we're only supposed to navigate this by making the best correct, I'm making air quotes all over the place, the best correct path and anything else we have to like reload the save file so that we always succeed by a huge margin. You don't, you don't need to do that. No one, no one, nobody is expecting this to be perfect that's not because you're only good or worth it or valuable when you're perfect it's just because there isn't a perfect at all you are just as worthy of love praise validation interest sales readership subscribers whatever just for being you and doing what you're doing and if what you're doing isn't working however you're defining working because that you know that's real variable too if you're Stuck or stumped, you can get help, you can ask questions, you can try writing a different way, you can take a break, you can push forward, you can do loads of different things. But that still doesn't make the idea right or wrong. Overthinking is so often predicated on extra stuff. Rightness, wrongness, ease, difficulties, speed, time, rewards, and all of those things. Don't matter. We're told they matter and we bolt them onto our ideas like they do matter, but they don't matter because what your story is and what your story isn't is a set of decisions you can make. I want to tell a historical fiction story from the 1990s immediately frames a story that is not a big giant space opera. It's not star Wars. It's not Lord of the Rings. It's not cyberpunk, you know, whatever, whatever. It's just a story from the 80s or 90s. And that's fine. That's okay. It's not like we're trying to find, is a story in 1994 easier to sell than a story in 1993? No, because that's not what sells a book. The point I'm trying to make is that you get to decide And make that decision as to what is and isn't the story based on what you want, what you feel connected to. If you're not sure because you feel connected to all of those things, then picking any single one of them won't matter. It won't be a problem. You have 10 options. They're all great. Well, then just pick any one of them. Just pick one and then go from there. And if you change your mind later, you change your mind later. It's okay. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to do this all right the first time and get it done once and then never have to do it again. We're going to constantly evolve. The story is going to evolve. Our process is going to evolve. How we do what we do and all that stuff in between evolves. So if you're going to overthink, break it down into small decisions. Even if you feel really stupid or silly doing it, It's going to be the most effective way of getting through whatever the problem is. What a great question. On we go. Question number 12. How is publishing a protest? I want you to notice that in this question, I'm not specifying the method of publication. I'm not talking about traditional publishing. I'm not talking about digital self-publishing, I'm not talking about zines, I'm not talking about, you know, um, encrypted, you know, self-deleting short-term messages on social media. Just the act of producing something is a protest. What are we protesting against? Doesn't matter. Whether we're talking about, you know, The themes of my story, and my story is a protest against those themes because I'm saying something about the dangers of this or the problems with that. That's a protest, sure. But that's still stuff in the story. I'm talking about you protesting and being transgressive and being revolutionary and being bold and being decisive and standing up and calling attention to yourself and doing a radical act by producing your art because that's that's really where the magic is that's really where the the protest is that's really where the the thing of it is we talk so often i think a lot of the hashtag writing community talks about this idea of writing a book so often as like a commercial transaction because late stage capitalism and brainwashing and, and trauma-based responses to this idea that we have to sell and commodify everything that we have forgotten that we are making art. We are doing the same sort of things as someone with a brush and canvas and the same sort of things as someone with stone and chisel or tile and fresco Or cameras and photos and bodies and light and dark. We are creating something that is not always easily commodifiable. And we are creating something because it spoke to us and it can further speak through us once we make it. We don't only do this stuff because we want to earn a paycheck. If that were the case probably all have an easier time doing other things to get paid. But our act of choosing how we express ourselves, because we are all, no matter who we are, no matter how we identify, no matter where we are, no matter what's going on, no matter what, we all as humans possess a need and an ability and I believe a responsibility to be heard and be valid and be seen, even if that's going to make somebody else upset, even if that's going to make somebody else uncomfortable, even if that's going to put us in some kind of conflict, direct or not, with somebody else's view or belief or action or whatever. We're all worth it. We're all wanting to be seen. We're all wanting to put ourselves out into the world and know that we're not alone and know that we matter and know that what we do isn't wasted and to know that we've made a difference. And the best way to do that is through our creativity more than our production. We don't make the world a better place by clocking into the nine to five and working for somebody who hates us and working so that we can afford a paycheck and so that we can barely survive. We make the world a better place by putting our voice out into it and by saying something that needs to be said and saying that thing in a way that only we can say it. That's, that's the whole magic trick. That's the whole shebang here. Publishing is one way of getting our voice out. It might be our voice through the magic of a lens about, you know, really punk rock tweens or something or a romance story of uh, two enemies made lovers because they get stuck in an elevator and find out they have a lot more in common than you'd expect or the um, magic quest of a knight to redeem his family legacy. That might be the vehicle by which we deliver our voice and view into the world. But we need to put that voice and view to the forefront of our creativity as opposed to, gosh, this is a really good idea. I think I could sell the shit out of it because it's it's more than that. It's bigger than that. It's better than that. It's more important than that. No one cares if you could sell it. It's not about selling it. Get selling out of the way. What are you doing? Doing with your art, what are you saying? Why aren't you looking at this as more than a commercial thing? And what do you need to give yourself or get for yourself so that you can see your art as more than a future pending commercial transaction? Yep, you'll get published, yep, you'll sell this thing. Okay, sure. Is that why you're doing it? Or are you doing it because you like to do it? And if you like to do it, what do you need so that you can do more of it if we take money off the table for a second? And the reason we take the money out of the equation is because money is the consequence of just selling and producing a thing. That's a a pretty straightforward transactional part of this. We're going beyond that. We're going to the personal stuff. What do you need to feel supported? What do you need to feel good enough? What do you need to be okay with doing more of this? Maybe being a little bit more aggressive with this. Maybe being willing to face some consequence for this. Maybe being willing to put your stuff out there and it kind of being quiet and crickets for a hot second or two until you get your feet under you. All of those decisions and all of those actions are not part of the norm. The norm would tell you that this stuff should be a hobby, that this stuff doesn't work, that only a few rarefied people who have been doing it for a very long time—they scooped up all the all the the seats in musical chairs—and you're left standing. They've they've got all the money. You're never going to break in. You're never going to get there. You're never going to, because of who you are, what you are, how you identify where you're at, whatever. Here are all these reasons why you can't do this, why this isn't going to work for you. And if you believe them and take those reasons as fact and you prove them right, then you're wasting your time trying to be published. But if you listen to all those statements, if you listen to all those people and you listen to all the things they're saying and it it sucks. And it doesn't just make you angry because they're telling you no, but it upsets something in you because it's communicating to you that these opinions, these statements don't want you to be heard, don't want you to get out into the world, don't want your voice present, don't want your validation or your existence, then you must publish as a protest As a way to thumb your nose at all those people, all those things, all those ideas that say you can't or shouldn't or don't do this. That's why publishing is a protest. It matters. And I think all that stuff gets real lost in the shuffle because we start talking about, well, how do I show up in more Amazon searches? Go fuck yourself. That's a nice question, but it's the wrong one to ask. Because did you do this? Did you d- develop your you know new adult erotic thriller because you wanted to show up in Amazon searches, or did you go through all that because you wanted to write this story? Your publishing, whatever, however you're publishing—Amazon or not, audio or not, sale—you know, digital file or not—is a protest against all the forces and all the things and all the people. That would suggest that there is no room for art in a world dominated by commerce. That's what makes publishing a protest. Maybe that was my favorite question of the day. And last, with one more mouthful of tea Question 13 How do I temper my doubt that my story is any good? I hear this doubt, I think, from about 90-something percent of my writers, 90% of my clients, multiple times, sometimes multiple times in a coaching session, will talk to me about how their story isn't any good. And if you're listening to this and you're one of those people, it doesn't matter if it's any good or not because what exactly does that mean? Really, pause this video if you're watching it or pause the podcast if you're listening to it and really think for a hot second about what it means, how are you defining any good? I'll wait right here. One hippopotamus, two hippopotamus, three hippopotamus. Okay, you back? You ever find that definition for any good? Did your definition of any good just involve other people just now? Did you define any good in terms of popularity or sales? Because if you defined any good by popularity and sales... That's marketing. Marketing generates popularity in sales. Communicating about the work generates popularity in sales. So if your story isn't any good, that's separate from your marketing. Because I don't know if you know this, there have been plenty of not well-crafted stories that get marketed to here and back. And those authors seem to be doing just fine. So that can't be what any good means, right? We're talking, we're not talking marketing. So let's, let's dig again. Let's, let's try this again. If you defined any good in terms of your ability to write a whole story or have a whole novel about it, well, okay. All right. But now we're talking about an outline. Now we're talking about your ability to make decisions and lay out a story. This is particularly interesting if you're a client and you're doing this to my face as if you think I'm not going to help you every single step of the way and help you figure out how to outline, how to craft your story, how to fix the problems when they come up, how to make those decisions, how to, you know, support you and through this process. Like, I'm not going to leave you high and dry. By the way, if you're listening to this and, and, and you need that, head over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. I'm always here for you. So if we're just talking about our organization and our decision-making and somehow using that to be any good, well, that's just organization and decision-making. That has nothing to do with the story. We're not even talking about the particulars of the story. Now we're just talking about whether or not we can organize it real well. Before we were talking about how you could sell a thing. Now we're talking about how you could organize a thing. When are we going to start talking about the story itself? So maybe you're thinking about any good in terms of the 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 substance of the story, okay, well, you thought it up. So if, if you're not interested by the idea, if you're not seeing a lot of different ways you could take it or ways you could shape it or different dimensions to the idea or you're picking an idea that you don't really give a shit about, why? You have an idea for a story, whatever it is. If it doesn't excite you, and I don't mean excite you like every day you sit down to write, holy shit, it's like you've just you know taken a lot of cocaine and were very, very eager to do anything. I mean like you like the idea. You enjoy the concept. You like thinking not so much about like now I'm on scene 22, now I'm on 23, now I'm on 24, but more like the fact that you enjoy writing an idea. I like writing... Um, A sexy cyberpunk version of The Three Musketeers. I love telling a noir story that involves uh, anthropomorphic food groups. Um, I want to tell a tragic uh, teen drama at a roller rink because you like the idea. That's enough. Your doubt that your story is any good has to come from your decision did you like the idea did it excite you how can we craft this idea and build on it in a way that sustains your enjoyment of the idea because there are going to be times in this process where you're going to be bored as shit and you're going to be frustrated and it's going to feel tedious because you can't love with the same level of excitement every inch of the story because you're not always going to be that hype every day. That's exhausting. I did a lot of drugs for many years and I wasn't that hype every day. Like that's just not a way things go. So on those days where you're not feeling it as much as you felt it on other days, rather than quit and wait for the next hype day, you got to be willing to push yourself forward and be a little disciplined and stick with it, but because the quality of the idea is only built on whether or not you're excited about it, and I don't just mean like, ooh, but more a sense of like, ah, there are many things I could say about this idea. When I think about this idea, I also think about all the adjacent parts, and that makes me want to tell it. If, if your story is regularly always giving you that surge, then isn't, isn't that good? If you're still defining any good by somebody else's criteria, whether or not somebody else is going to like it, you will always set yourself up for disappointment because there will always be somebody somewhere to go, nah, I don't like that idea because maybe they're an asshole and they don't like any ideas or maybe they just don't like the idea. But you can't get into producing art just to try and make everyone else happy. It, it It doesn't work that way. Because there's always going to be more people. There's always going to be somebody out there who's not going to like a thing. And it's not your job to try and win them over. You don't have to try and justify your existence by making sure no one is upset. Your job, your drive, the reason you're here is to express yourself. And one of the ways you will express yourself is by getting your story out into the world. Now, if we're going to talk about the production of it, putting your fingers on the keys, picking up the pen, writing down the words, you can get better at that. You can be not good at that. You can struggle to do that. You can have problems with it. And there are loads of things you can do, whether that's extra tools or techniques or whatever. There's loads of things you can do to ease that process, but that is separate from what the idea and the story is. You get to be excited about that. You get to be the one who decides it's worth and value. And if you are frequently in the habit of downplaying your stuff because you can't immediately guess somebody else's response, that is a recipe for frequent failure, my friends, because you will always be let down. Because you'll want somebody to be excited to a high degree They won't be because they don't have enough context and then you'll always be let down as a result. But if we just spin this around a little bit and you just turn this into, I like my idea. I like that I like my idea. I like that I like my idea and I'm excited to do it on the regular. And that's enough. That's plenty. It'll be fine. I don't know what's causing this doubt. But if your doubt is being caused by something that isn't you, Please know that if, if we're talking about external, second, you know, third people over there, all that stuff can be kind of walled off. It doesn't really matter in the long run. If your doubt is coming from a lack of support, you want some cheerleaders, you, you need some air horns in your life, then we can give you those. We can get you some support. You want some support? Head over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. You can most definitely do that and deal with that. You can get the support you need. You just need to go look for it and stuff. There's always something you can do to help you get better at this. You just need to be brave and willing to go look for it. And it'll be good because nobody sits down to do something bad on purpose. And yeah, it won't be, you know, flawless right off the bat, but... It's not about whether or not it's flawless. It's about whether or not you're happy with it, whether or not you are proud of it, whether or not you're putting your voice out into the world and being heard. That's what matters. That's what you should focus on. That's why we do this. What a great question. Are there any others? Anybody? Anything? Any other points? else we will uh we'll head right out the door. Okay. Shall we go? All right. Let's get out of here. Shall we? To the outro. I want to thank each and every single one of you for being here. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for your comments and your encouragement. I want to thank the two nice people who sent me text messages saying this was a great chat. I want to thank everybody. This was awesome. This one felt really good. Thanks for letting me talk about doubt and growth and marketing and Amazon and protests, spirals and everything in between. It really meant a lot to me. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, All power to all people, truly and absolutely. Thanks for being here. It meant a lot. Um, there's a couple things on the horizon. Uh, if you're a Patreon person at patreon.com forward slash John helps you write better. Uh, you might want to stay tuned to your inbox in the next couple days. More stuff's happening. Um, if you're a fan of streaming stuff, uh, there might be a thing happening in a few hours as I continue to play with some software. Who knows? We'll find out together. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hell of a day, hell of a chat. Thanks for being here. If you like this, head over to the Patreon and give you some support. If you need help with your work, no matter what it is, head over to, to com, book an appointment. More than happy to help you. Absolutely my pleasure to help you succeed. Thanks for being here. I love you. Keep writing. Don't give up. Don't let the people stop. You. You're good enough. Keep going. And I'll talk to you very, very soon. See you.